0: Hey, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this message helps you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, visit theroadfc.org and click the giving link. Last week, we began uh, our Easter series. uh, We're calling The Uprising. And while uprisings often refer to violent revolution against oppressive powers, uh, the uprising that we're talking about is fundamentally different. Uh, that the uprising in Jesus' name does in fact confront oppressive power, but it does so in a totally new way. That the uprising centered around Jesus' resurrection is an uprising of hope instead of hate, of love instead of violence. Of life and peace instead of hostility and death. It is an uprising of open hands instead of clenched fists. And so, after setting the scene and uh, last week of talking about the good news of Jesus' resurrection, that in fact began this this uprising so long ago, that we're still right in the middle of, that we're still seeking to follow and live into. Um. What we're going to spend the rest of our time in the series doing is kind of unpacking markers of this uprising or this revolution that is centered on uh, in Christ's name and centered on the confession that Jesus is Lord and has, in fact, risen from the dead. Uh, And so our our passage this morning is is actually another uh, Easter passage. It's from John chapter 20. Uh, You can churn there with me. You can click there with me. But I'm going to be reading John chapter 20, beginning with verse 19. I'll be reading from the New Revised Standard Version, the NRSV. Uh, But it says this, and this is a familiar passage. Um, Perhaps many of you have have heard of this story or studied this story before, uh, but I hope to bring some new light to it this morning. It says this, When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them. And he said, Peace be with you. Now after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them, and he said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. And if you retain the same sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who is called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But Thomas said to them, Unless I see the mark Of the nail in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nail in my in my hand in his side then i will not believe verse 26 now a week later uh, his disciples were again in the house and thomas was with them although the doors were shut jesus came and stood among them and said peace be with you then he said to thomas put your finger here and see my hands Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God now this scene takes place on easter evening now if you remember our passage from luke chapter 24 last week also took place on easter evening and so we might ask which one is true what actually happened on easter evening Uh, did jesus appear to the disciples on the road to emmaus or to those who were waiting in jerusalem and the answer is it could be both uh, or it could be one or the other. And what we I just want to remind us, uh, I want to bring that up to remind us that the Gospels are not written as strict historical narratives of what happened. But rather they are theological books where the authors have arranged the events of Jesus' life in order to communicate their unique theological message to their unique audience. Now, of course, we get the benefit of kind of reading all of these and beginning to discern uh, and see the theological distinctions between all of these Gospels. So the the essence is, is yes, we can learn about the history of Jesus' life by looking at the Gospels, but we shouldn't think that their only goal is to retell an exact or strict order of events of Jesus' life. Because, again, that is not the goal of the writing of the Gospels. The Gospels' goal is to communicate theologically to their audience. And so the question is not which one actually happened, but rather to begin to understand that each uh, resurrection evening story, the one in Luke 24, the one in John 20, offers to us some important truths for our own lives. So last week we looked at the truth of Luke 24. This week, I want to look at the truth of John 20. And I think there's kind of many layers or nuances of truth. And so I kind of have a driving point, a driving message where I want to end. But I think there's so, so many kind of little things that I want us to pick up on. And, and the first thing is this, that, that while they were hiding in fear, uh, while the disciples were hiding in a room that was locked for in fear, Jesus appears to them. And I don't want you to allow that to pass over too quickly. That Jesus meets them in their fear. And the first thing that he says to fearful disciples is, Peace be with you. That's similar to the disciples that were so disoriented on their way from Jerusalem to Emmaus, Jesus appears to them and begins to explain and and lovingly point out all the ways in which the scriptures have have pointed to himself. Here he comes in to a a group of disciples who are themselves disoriented, feeling afraid, and says to them, peace be with you. And then the second thing he says is he actually offers them this, this mission, this way of living out uh, the truth of Jesus that they had been learning for years as the disciples of Jesus. And now the resurrected Jesus comes to, appears to them and essentially says nothing has changed. The mission remains the same. He says, if you forgive the sins of, of any, they are forgiven. And so I want you to get the picture here. He appears to a group of fearful disciples and he speaks a message of peace and forgiveness. Ask yourself, is this the kind of of message that you would expect from an innocent man who his life had ended a few days earlier at the hands of the state? No way. You would expect messages of revenge and, and retaliation and all of this, but this man executed at the hands of the state defeats death through resurrection and appears to his disciples with words of peace and forgiveness. It's Jesus' way of saying, my movement has not changed. In fact, it's Jesus' way of showing that his whole movement, his whole message has been vindicated through his resurrection. That Jesus has entered death, come out through the other side, defeated death, and the message of forgiveness and peace remains the same. Now, of course, with these words, the disciples are energized. It gives them new confidence that Jesus is, in fact, the world's Messiah, that he had risen from the dead. They had seen his scars, except for Thomas. (laughs) Thomas wasn't there. Thomas has a bad reputation, doesn't he? Doubting Thomas, we call him he was probably a bit stern he was probably even a little bit gloomy Um, some might call Thomas a pessimist Um, pessimists might call him a realist right he's the one who's always seeing things as they actually are here's just a couple of highlights from Thomas's life Um, when the disciples learned that Lazarus uh, has had died Thomas says that they might as well follow Jesus Uh, to Lazarus's house, uh, if only to die as well. (laughs) And when Jesus says uh, to his disciples, when Jesus said these words to his disciples, do not let your hearts be troubled. In my father's house, there are many rooms and I go to prepare a place for you. Like the words that bring us so much comfort and hope. Uh, It was Thomas who said to Jesus, right after he said those words, Thomas says, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way, right? And then in our current passage, Thomas is the disciple who um, on Easter evening is nowhere to be found. We don't know where he is. So while the other disciples were filled filled with fear, they're hiding behind uh, locked doors, Thomas is the one who is missing on Easter evening. And then, of course, after encountering the risen Christ, uh, the other disciples were excited. They were filled with joy. But Thomas was unconvinced. And all the melancholy among us says, yeah, that sounds about right. (laughs) Maybe it's for these reasons that Thomas has kind of developed a bad reputation. But I have to think that if that same metric were used for naming us now, I think that I could very easily be called doubting. There've been times in my life where I've been the one to say, mm, I'm not so sure about that. Or, uh, I've got some questions about all of this. It's uh maybe, maybe you can identify with that as well. Or, or maybe for you, maybe for you, doubting, isn't quite the right adjective. Maybe, Maybe a better fit might be uncertain or fearful or curious. In fact, I kind of think that maybe we shouldn't give Thomas such a hard time. I mean, after all, this is not just a run-of-the-mill claim. We are talking about a man overcoming death to which Thomas says, you know, I, I think I need to see some real evidence for that myself. Now, one week later, the disciples were all gathered together again. This time, Thomas is with them, and Jesus appears among them. Again, they're behind locked doors. Uh, Their status of fear, their feeling of fear has not waned. It hasn't gone away. One week later, they're still in the same boat, hiding behind locked doors for the most part. And then Jesus appears among them. Now, let's do a quick side note here and just kind of recognize how odd and silly, maybe even funny it is, uh, that in the resurrection stories, Jesus just seems to appear and disappear at will. And some of you might be tempted to say, Pastor Andy, what is all of that about? Jesus appearing and disappearing. And let me tell you the short answer is, I don't know. I have no idea, right? But it's just this kind of odd thing about Jesus in the resurrection stories, his ability to appear and disappear. But despite all my uncertainty about that, I do want to point out a couple of things uh, in this text that I hope will help us. And I hope will be an encouragement to us. Uh, not only for this time and in this season, but even if even in normal times, um, I think that this these, these truths will be helpful to us. I don't think it's any small thing that the resurrected and redeemed body of Jesus bears scars. Um, I bear a large physical scar on my left knee from cancer. Uh, At age 18, I learned that I had a large, uh, well, a large bump had formed over my left patella tendon. And at age 18, I learned that that was in fact a malignant tumor. So the doctors uh, took the tumor out, uh, Replace my patella tendon, and thanks be to God, I have been healed and have not had to worry about it for a number of years now. But I have a large scar to tell the story. For those of you in the medical profession, uh, forgive me for the inaccuracies of what I'm about to say, but as best as I understand it, scars form when the dermis, that is the deep, thick layer of skin, Uh, is wounded or harmed in such a way that the body must form new collagen fibers to mend that damage. And so a scar forms when there's been a deep wound that must be healed by new life, new skin, new collagen fibers forming over that. Now, of course, we know that scars can be physical, but they can also be emotional as well. And all of us bear scars of some kind. But here's what I want to point out, is that when wounds turn into scars, it means that the wound has experienced healing. That, that, think about it in this way, scars are wounds that are filled with living flesh. In this way, the scars that we bear tell stories of both the deep hurt and pain, but all of the redemption. That when we have scars, it means that healing has taken place, that the wound is no longer there, right? There's, There's a distinction between an open wound and a scar. And scarring takes place after the healing process. And the scar indicates both the presence of past deep pain, but also healing and redemption. And so I'm utterly struck by the idea that the redeemed and resurrected body of Jesus bears the scars of the cross. And while I don't know fully what this means, I think that it at least points us to the reality that life cannot be contained that even with pain and wounds and doubts rejections disappointments letdowns and failures that even in the midst of all of those things the redemptive work of god turns those wounds into scars it takes the wounded parts and fills them with life to point us to the fact and the reality that god is a God of life and of redemption. And I can't help but think, and I want you to hear this with me, church. I can't help but think that since the risen Christ showed his scars, maybe that means that we don't have to hide ours. I think there's obviously discernment of how to show scars and and when to reveal those scars. I don't know that it's healthy or good to just kind of live openly with all of our scars, but nor do I think it's healthy or good to always consistently hide our scars for fear that there is shame related to those. Could it be that the fact that the risen Christ showed his scars means that we don't always have to hide ours? that maybe, just maybe, those scars are there to help tell a story of redemption and new life. The second observation I want to make out of this story is the reality that Jesus does not criticize Thomas for his doubt, his uncertainty, or his questioning. During our Facebook Live uh, time with eKids, this past Wednesday, Pastor Grace taught from this story, and I love what she said. Thomas had questions, and questions aren't bad. What a great message for kids, but what a great message for adults as well. So often we, we feel that having uncertainty or having doubts or having questions is a point of shame, as though our faith is equal to certainty. Lord, forgive us for sharing or allowing people or leading people to believe that faith is equal to certainty. Jesus doesn't shame Thomas for needing to see it himself. What Jesus does is gently call Thomas to himself, show him his scars, and allow Thomas to touch them. It strikes me that some people just need to be closer to the miracle to see it. Because upon seeing the wounds of Jesus, Thomas makes the confession of faith, my Lord and my God. Which is to say that that Thomas saw and recognized God in a man who was scarred. Let me. I want you to catch this, that Thomas saw and recognized God in a man who was scarred, but whose holy aliveness was more powerful and more palpable than the cruelty that he had endured. This is so important. Thomas saw God in a man who was scarred, but that man had such a holy aliveness and whose power, whose power, whose aliveness was more powerful and more palpable than the cruelty that he had endured. And Thomas's life was transformed because of this encounter. So despite his doubting, despite his questions, despite his uncertainty, despite his declaration that I must see this for myself, I must be close to the miracle, Thomas is always counted among them. Did you catch that? That even when the disciples were gathered in a room behind locked doors, the scripture is clear to say to us that Thomas wasn't there. We don't know where Thomas was. He is gone missing on Easter evening. Maybe he had some doubts. Maybe he wasn't sure. Maybe he was curious about something else. And yet, even though he isn't physically present... Thomas is counted among them as one of them. Do you hear this? Do you see this? Despite his doubting, Thomas was always counted among the disciples. He was part of them. He wasn't always certain. He didn't always believe. He often had questions, but he stayed with them, and he was welcomed. Here's the point that I want to drive home today and the place that I want to land. The uprising of Jesus is an uprising of fellowship. And sometimes, sometimes we misunderstand fellowship as a sense of community among like-minded people. Sometimes we misunderstand fellowship as only being a sense of community among like-minded people. Maybe, it's, maybe sometimes we misunderstand fellowship as a sense of belonging among people who have paid their dues, people who believe the same thing, or have the same partisan persuasions. But let me tell you and remind you, church, that this is not fellowship. It might be community, it might be camaraderie, but it isn't biblical fellowship. Biblical fellowship is something far deeper, far richer, and more robust. Biblical fellowship is far more challenging and far more demanding of us than just camaraderie. I like how Brian McLaren puts it and describes fellowship. He writes this in his book called We Make the Road by by Walking, or We Make the Way by Walking. Uh, he says this, Fellowship is a kind of belonging that isn't based on status, achievement, or gender but instead is based on the deep belief that everyone matters everyone is welcome and everyone is loved no conditions no exceptions wow that is way harder to live out that's way more challenging that calls out way more and requires way more of us than a simple sense of belonging or community now fellow is community and certainly is belonging but 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 it's it's more than that it's richer than that it's deeper than that and so let's not look at Thomas with doubting Thomas as though we are above that or different than that oh man but instead let's recognize that faith is not equal to certainty and that Thomas was always welcomed as a disciple and counted among them. This Christ-centered uprising is for all people, church. It's for those who aren't certain all the time. It's for those who tend to fear. It's for those who know exactly what they believe all the time and for those who aren't sure what or how to believe. It is for those who are brave and those who aren't. It is for men and women. It is for the rich and poor. It is for those who show their scars and those who tend to hide them. And it must be this way. Because only together can we figure things out. Only together can we learn to hope, believe, and love in the ways that Jesus called us to. (laughs) If we fall into the trap or if we fall into the temptation of only developing a sense of fellowship among people who are just like us, then we miss out on so much. So church, I want to declare this over us, that the good news of Jesus is not just for the brave. It's for those who are afraid and willing to gain courage. It isn't just for the certain. It's for the uncertain who are willing to continue seeking and asking and discerning. It's for the doubting, it's for those who doubt despite their skepticism. It's for good people, normal people, flawed people. It's for people like Doubting Andy or Uncertain Fill in Your Name or Fearful or Curious or Questioning. Whatever you feel is the appropriate adjective to put in front of your name. There is room at the table for you. Because the uprising of Jesus is nothing if it isn't an uprising of fellowship. These are difficult words, challenging words to my own heart to my own life. But I am reminded in this season where we're, where we're called to be physically distant, I'm so reminded of, of how much we need one another. And so may we enter into this uprising of fellowship together. Well, let me lead us to the Lord's table today. Let me say a word of prayer as we come to the table. Heavenly Father, this word uh, challenges me to the core. And of all all the people, all the personalities in the scriptures today, I think I identify most with Thomas. The one who isn't quite sure all the time, the one who has a lot of questions. Um, the one who maybe isn't so prone to um, believe without investigation. God, thank you that there is a place at the table for me, for Thomas, for others. God, thank you that there's a place at the table for all of us. I pray, God, that you would rise up the body of Christ. Just as your body raised out of the grave, God, would you raise us to new life. That we would, in fact, be unique people centered on the confession that Jesus is Lord. May it not be for us just more of the same, but May this time, may this season in the life of the church be transformative for us all. And God, um, as we come to the table today, we thank you that you are a God who does not um, build walls or strict boundaries, but God, you are a God who builds a long table and offers grace and welcome. hospitality to us all. So be with us in these days. May we sense your presence as we gather around your table today. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.